Hello, everybody. Welcome to the CPR podcast. I'm Zachar Moses, practicing and board of emergency medicine physician and practicing lifestyle medicine physician, joined again with Sagar Doshi, practicing and boarded both lifestyle and emergency medicine physician. Today, we're going to take what might seem like a detour away from lifestyle interventions and talk about COVID. It's everywhere. There's significant developments, and we have not touched on it yet. So we want to do that now. Zach, bring us up to speed on where we are with COVID. And even just tell us what COVID is again. So at the time of this recording, COVID has infected more than 12 million people in the United States with 300,000 dead. It is the coronavirus outbreak that is changing really life as we know it right now. There's been a lot of research into it, but it's still relatively new in the onset of this virus. There's a lot of things that we're still learning. So things seem to change very rapidly, whether it's advice from health groups or the government or FDA or CDC or World Health Organization. There's a lot of different information being brought out, still even in the States, still in December now, uh, more than nine months into the main cases in America and over a year into the onset of the virus, we're still learning things. We're a little bit... uh, we kind of have a moving target here when we talk about this. And even today, we'll talk about things that we think we know. Uh, the research seems to suggest that the things we're going to say are true, but sometimes those things do change. We thought some things initially about this particular virus that later on went on a change, and that is certainly possible now. So what we do know are the statistics that we just gave, that over 300,000 confirmed cases in the, United, in the United States have resulted in death. We also know that the morbidity is significant, morbidity being the things that, the disability that comes from getting a specific disease that doesn't necessarily result in death immediately. Yeah, Uh, people are obsessed with the morbidity statistics or the death ratio or how likely is a person to die if they catch the disease. But what often goes overlooked is the fact that if you get this, it's not just roses and whatever else comes with roses, chocolate perhaps, for a few days, (laughs) and you feel good and you're back to normal, there are some repercussions that can come. Yeah, so some of the things that we've described and some of the experts have called it a long hauler syndrome, or they call the people who get this with prolonged symptoms as long haulers. Uh, So basically those are people who still have fatigue or shortness of breath or what's called a brain fog. Um kind of the long-lasting symptoms that are vague but certainly present. After four weeks, right now we think about 13% of people will have that. After eight weeks, 5%, and even 2% of people will have it 12 weeks later. So even three months after getting the virus, people are still not back to themselves. I just had a patient in the emergency department just uh, last shift. That was telling me how she's having shortness of breath, chest discomfort, palpitations, weird tingling sensations that started when she first got COVID in March, and it is now December. Yeah, and I, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen with the exact same thing where they come in like, hey, I'm still just short of breath, and you get an x-ray and it looks clear, and their blood work looks good, and their oxygen level looks good, even with walking, but they're still feeling short of breath. And I, I've been having to tell my patients, I don't, we don't have a whole lot of answers about this yet. We don't have any treatment for this yet. It's just something that's been described and we don't know how long it's going to last. I would imagine and hope that it's short term or intermediate term in this case. And I hope it's not years and years later, but I guess it's possible. Uh, And this doesn't even get into all the societal implications of this, the masks and the social distancing and the 
depression that kind of comes along with being away from people and not being able to see your doctor and keep up on your health care, hospitals being overwhelmed, surgeries and procedures getting pushed back. These are just deaths specifically from COVID, not from all of the secondary causes of death that happen because people aren't able to get their normal health care or live their lives as normal. And Sagar, I'm sure you've seen this. Even some of the, the weird things like people who have no other symptoms, and I've seen a couple of these where they come in looking like they're having a heart attack, the big EKG changes, they have chest pain, they go to the cath lab, their cath is negative, mm-hmm. so their, their arteries are clean, their coronary arteries are open, but they test positive for COVID. Yeah, the couple STEMIs or the big EKG change heart attacks I've seen that is the beginning of COVID for these patients have actually also had occlusions that needed to be stented open. Yeah. But that is how they first presented. Yeah, and a couple of my partners have seen people with ischemic limbs, so they'll get blood clots in their legs that, not the DVTs you hear about, but the actual arterial clots that require usually emergent surgery, uh, no other symptoms, just just COVID, and then that. So it's a very strange illness that we don't, again, fully understand, but it's, I mean, these are things that we're seeing. I mean, this is, some of this is anecdotal and some of this is statistically shown. Yeah, and that's all stuff that doesn't get captured in the death rate or the mortality rate. Right. But luckily, there's been this vaccine that people have been hearing about. Pfizer, yeah. Moderna have come out with mRNA vaccines. Others are working on adenovirus vaccines. But, you know, let's just take a step back and cover the basics. First off, what is a virus? Yeah, good question. So a lot of people think that virus is this live thing that they got similar to a, a bacterium. Uh, and it's actually not even considered alive by most, uh, by most definitions. Um, it's a... It's a piece of, in this case, single-celled, or, or I'm sorry, single-stranded RNA, uh, which kind of holds the code to all the proteins of the virus that are packaged inside these proteins that are kind of expertly designed to deliver the viral particles and the RNA into a cell. In our case, our lung cells or endothelial cells or whatever cells that are getting infected by the virus, and then deliver this RNA and these proteins so that it can hijack your cells, ability to make protein, and ability to make RNA, in this case, to produce more and more and more. And this is what eventually overwhelms the body as your body trying to respond to it. But the, this particular virus is a pretty good job of stopping our response of doing that. So a virus in its simplest form is a protein around a piece of RNA or DNA that is designed to produce more of itself using your cell's hardware. That's the simplest definition. That's like a parasite. There's a lot of ones that are viruses that don't do anything to us, but this one obviously has some effects. Right. This particular virus likes to attach to one of our cell, our cell receptors, our ACE receptors, actually. Uh, and you've probably heard of ACE inhibitors or ACE blockers, the blood pressure medicines. This particular cell likes to attach to those receptors and send its packaging into our cells, where it decides that it's going to hijack our ribosomes. Ribosomes are protein creators, basically. So they take that code, that RNA code that this virus sends in, and they create proteins. And the virus, the first thing that it likes to do once it's in our cells, is create more of its own RNA. And one of the proteins that it makes not only creates that protein or creates that that RNA, but it likes to block up our ribosomes, so our own protein powerhouses, basically, and stops it from creating the response to kill the virus. So it's very good at not just creating itself, but in the inhibiting our body from fighting it, fighting back against it. So once it does that, it's able to create more of its proteins. Now it has free reign over the cell, 
and kind of hijack the rest of our cell's ability to create proteins and then do nothing now but create more and more viral particles. And once it gets to the point where it's able to create these proteins and fold them back, back into themselves and rehouse the RNA, which is now everywhere in the cell because it's been hijacking our cells ability to make RNA, now it's just encasing that RNA inside of its own proteins and sending it back out to restart the cycle all over again. I know that's kind of complicated, but the point is this particular virus is very good at stopping our response and augmenting its own protein-making capabilities so it makes a ton of its own virus. And you forgot the best part, which is when we spread it to each other, because then it gets into our uh, lungs, because that's where it decided to live. And then we get to spread it around by breathing hard and coughing and talking loud, maybe even laughing. Yeah. And there's actually, it's not just in our lungs where this thing takes effect, though. And that's kind of the, I don't know if you want to call it interesting or terrible part about this virus, is it almost acts like what's called a vasculitis. And Sagar, you can chime in here anytime you want. But what we're seeing is a lot of people with particular diseases that put them at risk for this virus to cause bad outcomes or the people who are more likely to die or have bad lung disease are people who are kind of predisposed to have problems with end organ oxygen delivery. And what I mean by that is when you have a virus that acts on the end or on a blood tissue or on blood vessels and causes inflammation there because it likes to go into where your blood vessels are exchanged or your, your, your gases are exchanged in your blood, which is called your capillaries. But if you have high blood pressure or diabetes, those areas are already a little bit weakened because you've got some atherosclerosis or you've got some very small blood vessel disease because of high pressures or abnormal uh, uptake among people who have diabe uh, diabetes. So this virus acts in the same spots and those people get into big trouble because they're already kind of predisposed to have problems there. And so little, those little ones getting blood clots or a bunch of inflammatory responses at the capillaries, which is where gas exchange happens in the lungs. And those people get really, really sick. And I think that's the best explanation I, I can give for why people with diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure are the ones getting so sick with this. Yeah, because if you happen to be a young, otherwise healthy, as far as people can tell, person, you're probably going to end up doing fine if you don't turn into someone with this long hauler syndrome. Mm -hmm. But if you happen to have these other medical conditions, then there's some significant effects. I mean, if we just look at the odds of death, not even the illness or any of that stuff, uh, the odds of dying from SARS-CoV-2, aka COVID, from diabetes is 26 times that if with diabetes, then not diabetes. And then if you have high blood pressure, that's nearly nine times the odds of dying with COVID compared to someone who does not have high blood pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you even look at some of the, there was a study done and so it's, it's actually experimental clinical endocrinology and diabetes is the name of the journal, but the results. So they look at the number of people who have died as of on December 9th. So, so just recently. So among the people who died with coronavirus, 77.4% uh, of them had hypertension, 71% had diabetes. And the people who were admitted hospitalized 38.4 and 20.9 respectively. Same thing. Uh, and then you kind of go down in coronary artery disease, dyslipidemia, so high, high cholesterol, um, 
heart failure, and those are kind of the other ones, but those, the hypertension and diabetes, were kind of the two big ones in this particular study. And there was another study, this one in December of 2020 as well, so this is a week ago, which shows that among people who were admitted to the hospital, 55% of them had high blood pressure, 33% were diabetic, 23% were smokers, 17% had heart disease. And this is among 39,000 hospitalized patients in the United States and China. So again, diabetes and hypertension leading the list. So it seems that diabetes and hypertension are the two biggest risk factors, even above smoking. And a lung disease, you would expect smoking to kind of take the, take the lead here, which also causes microvascular disease. And that might just be because there's less smokers than there were people with hypertension and diabetes. But high blood pressure and diabetes is still the number one and two issues with people getting hospitalized and dying with COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you just look at these groups and these hospitalized groups, and I believe in that um, there's a study about these people coming from July 2020, 30,000 people, 20 from the US and the EU, and then 10,000 from China. If you look at these high-risk groups and you put them together and ask what is the mortality rate, you're looking at 20%, and that's huge. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, that's not to say that young and healthy people can't get sick with this because we've both seen that. We know that that happens. But again, by far and away, these are the people who are getting sicker that are the people with comorbidities that are reversible and preventable. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, you know, how does this relate to lifestyle medicine? You are in a lifestyle medicine podcast here and we're talking about COVID, an infectious disease. How does that relate? And I would argue in this particular case, it relates significantly. I mean, we all know the things that have been talked about by the CDC that you can do to prevent getting the disease and, you know, sheltering in place and staying at home. And there are a lot of things there, of course. But among people who get and it, do those things. I'm just reiterating that we should do those things. Mask wearing and physical distancing, very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these things are getting the disease does not necessarily need to be a death sentence for anybody, and especially with now the data that we're having about this, that there are some things that uh, certainly put people at greater risk that we can that we can do something about. And speaking of things that we should all do, we should go back and talk about. One thing, the vaccine that just came out and another vaccine that's coming out soon. Sagar, you want to go ahead and just talk about your thoughts on that? So I think these vaccines are fantastic news. Uh, They are not going to be an immediate cure-all. They're not going to be everything we need at just the right time because this thing has gotten so out of hand already. And there are not enough people able to get the vaccine all at once and even willing to get the vaccine all at once, that it's going to make a giant immediate impact. But the fact that these vaccines are here and they're here less than a year since it hit the country is amazing. There's a couple different kinds of vaccines. The ones that are coming to us soon, the one by Pfizer, the one by Moderna, are these mRNA vaccines. And then the ones by Oxford and these other companies, Johnson & Johnson whatnot, they're using an adenovirus, adenovirus vaccine, uh, which is cool and all, but the mRNA one is the most interesting one. This is the one where you've been seeing uh, 90% efficacy or 95% efficacy. And the way it works is, remember how this virus, it carries all of its information on a strand of mRNA? Well, so does a vaccine. They've taken a very tiny part of this viral code, just the thing for spike proteins. And the spike proteins are these bumps 
that coat the outer surface of the virus and let it plug in to our receptors and let it access the cell. So this vaccine holds the bump code. The exciting part about about vaccinating against that S protein is that it's consistent across all the forms of the coronavirus. So even if it mutates, that S protein, that spike protein has been consistent. So if you hit that one, you'll hit all the mutations of this particular SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, it's amazing. And then it just it gets surrounded by a little bit of fat. It gets injected into your arm, your thigh, wherever they've decided to give it to you. Um, and it starts infecting your cells to make S protein or the spike protein stuff. But that's it. It's not making an actual virus, just this protein. And so once your cells start producing it, your own body's immune system picks up on it, makes antibodies and other responses to it. And now, after some time, um, and a booster shot, you are creating the response that you need to this virus without ever getting the actual infection. In fact, it's such a good response that it's making about uh, a potency that's 10 to 20 times that of the response you would get from actually getting the real infection. So this is a case where the vaccine is better than getting the actual infection. You get more of an immune response from the vaccine because the virus isn't around with the vaccine to screw up your immune response. And it's important to mention that that's exactly what the point is. That protein that the virus makes that plugs up your ribosomes that create your proteins, that's not encoded in this little strand of RNA. So all of those things that dysregulate your immune response aren't there. So your body is able to not just respond to this, but then regulate its own response and not get out of control. And that's why you don't see people getting the same exact response where they die from the inflammatory response because the body is able to create the proper proteins in the right quantities and not have to overreact in a certain way because it's unable to produce the proper response that it wants to produce because the virus is blocking it up. Yeah, it's the thing about the immune system. It is a balancing act of letting certain things be fine, responding aggressively to other things, but then not aggressively responding too much so that you end up hurting yourself. It's not just to say enough to, that we need to strengthen the immune response. If you watch all these other clickbait podcasts, commercials, whatever, you get a lot of bad information there because they come on strengthening the immune system. It's too finely balanced to just talk about strengthening because you may overshoot. Yeah. And there's a lot of things about the immune response. Keep in mind that we don't fully understand from that standpoint where we can say, you know, they, they initially thought steroids would be helpful and to some degree it is helpful. But then they were thinking hydroxychloroquine because it could temper the immune response and make sure it's not so aggressive. But again, like you said, it's so fine tuned. You need to calm down the certain parts of the immune response that are bad when it gets overkill and then ramp up other parts. And we don't know how to do that. Uh, and that's why the best thing to do is give the body the ability to do that on its own, which is what this vaccine is trying to do. Yeah, and there's some therapies out there right now um, for tamping down the immune response at a certain time. Um, so people are learning right. how to do it. Infectious disease specialists are learning how to do it, and they're getting better and better at it, and they're better at it now than they've ever been before. So <laughs> there's definitely a lot uh, of progress being made there. But that's just the vaccine. I would argue that even... Without the vaccine, there's stuff that people can do to really affect their chances of having a bad response to this virus. Such as? So that's where the lifestyle interventions come in. That's where lifestyle medicine comes in. Because if we just tell you that, hey, if you have diabetes and high blood pressure, 
uh, and that's going to, you know, 26 times your chance of dying from this virus if you get infected. That sounds terrible mm -hmm. because it's not appreciated that these are medical conditions that people have control over. A lot of people view them as things that they were just born to have or their whole family has. And, ah, uh, fate. Fate just determined that this would happen to me. But really, we have control. We have power. And there's a variety of ways of doing it. My first one that I just want to point out here is sleeping. Sleeping is fantastic. And it's important to get all the rest that you need. And you do need at least an eight-hour window a chance to get your sleep. Now, whether you're a person that needs seven hours of sleep, seven and a half, eight, bring me nine. I don't know, but that's, that's up to you to figure that out. But you need a good chunk of consistent sleep. A person who is sleep deprived is three to 5.5, five and a half times more likely to get the common cold than someone who has been sleeping well. And then there's also studies on vaccinations in regards to sleep deprivation. If you don't get enough sleep, you do not end up creating the proper immune response to a vaccine. And if you haven't slept before or you haven't slept after, when you get the vaccine, you're not going to create um, enough of a response to maybe battle off the true virus when it gets to you. So it's very important to get sleep. And I think it's important to mention about the common cold thing, but of course, COVID-19 is by no means a common cold. However, coronaviruses do make up a class of viruses that do cause what's known as the common cold. So the mechanism for mm -hmm. immunity from them is probably very similar, uh, or at least similar enough that I would certainly venture a wager that would say, if you slept better, you're less likely to get COVID. Again, there's no study about this. It's, this virus is a year old. We don't know these things directly as it relates to COVID, but if it helps with the common cold in this particular case, I would imagine it would also help with COVID. Now, I mean, being sleep deprived will drop your natural killer T cells uh, just in quantity, anywhere from 30% to 70%. Those are important cells. As they sound, they sound cool. The, you definitely don't want to limit your natural the, killer cells. That just sounds like you're doing yourself no. a disservice. <laughs> <laughs> so what else can we do, Zach? So, um, you know, there's, there's some questionable, I shouldn't say questionable. There's some uh, soft evidence that vitamin D supplementation may help. And I'm putting this, you know, if, if you were seeing me, you'd be seeing my air quotes. We think it may help. There's some studies that suggest that people who are vitamin D deficient are more likely to die if they catch COVID. Uh, and there's some literature that's been done in the past that looks at people who are vitamin D deficient and their immunity seems to be a bit less than people who aren't. Um, so there's some people that say that if you're taking vitamin D daily, uh, if you're deficient, it's helpful. Uh, a, a huge one that we don't talk about a ton is is stress. Uh, and, and you think about like how many times do you get, you know, you have a deadline to reach or something or you're in, if you were in college or what, and you're staying up all night and pulling all-nighters and preparing for a test or something like that. And you all, I had, how many times do you get sick during or afterward because you're stressed out and you're not sleeping well? Uh, and there's actually good studies that people who are stressed actually have dysregulated immune systems. Yeah, just mechanistically, when you have all these things like adrenaline um, going around, these things, one of their jobs is to lower the immune response because it's a fight or flight response and you don't want to be wasting energy on an immune response while you're running away from the lion. 
So there was a 2004 meta-analysis, and that basically means they looked at a bunch of different studies uh, that showed that uh, the most, in, in this particular case, looked at depression and how it applied to immunity. They looked at immune factors, and people had worsened immune systems or decreased numbers of immune cells, basically, uh, even 18 months after a period of depression. And in this particular case, it was actually the duration of the depression more so than the severity of the depression that made the biggest response. Uh, but regardless, we know that there's a factor. And then you already mentioned the flu vaccine. Uh, they, they actually did a flu shots at a university health center in 2005. Uh, and they looked at saliva samples for measuring uh, cortisol. Uh, and then they did like a loneliness factor for each person. Uh, and, and the point is people with uh, loneliness and small social networks had less of an immune response to the vaccine. Yeah, just loneliness in itself is just makes all sorts of disease worse. And it's, it's a medical condition in and of itself. Oh, just to put a plug in here for physical activity and exercise, always important, but now even more so, because not only is it going to help with feeling better, fighting off depression, but it's also going to help with lowering stress. And as we've just discovered, anything that helps you lower stress is going to help you fight off infections better. And you know what? If you're exercising more and you're tired when you go to bed, you're going to sleep better too. Yeah. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) You're very excited by that. That makes me happy. (laughs) I I am. I'm very excited about that. I'm a big, I'm a big exercise person. I think it's, uh, I think it's important. Um, Not that none of this or any of this isn't, but also we should mention some of these things that are being studied or have been studied have been found to be helpful or presumed to be helpful. Uh, and some of them are still under underway. Like a lot of the dietary stuff that we're looking at now, you know, there's ginger, there's resveratrol and polyphenols, curcumin, vitamin D. Um, there's a, a whole bunch. Selenium are looked at, they look at these specific immune response that these particular compounds can affect. And theoretically, most of them should be helpful. We don't know for sure. There are active studies going on on a lot of these particular dietary supplements or things that would be in your diet anyway, uh, if you're eating in a healthy way. Um, I think at this point in time, the best recommendation that we have for how to eat is the same recommendation as we always have. Lots of variation of fruits and vegetables in your diet, whole grains, um, trying to avoid processed and fatty foods, things that, again, are helpful for most diseases. And these are also going to moderate your diabetes and hypertension, heart disease, things like that that are also going to put you at high risk. Uh, so overall, I don't think that we have many suggestions for how to eat differently. We do know that some therapies have been totally debunked or found not, found not to be helpful. Uh, one of them being hydroxychloroquine. We know that that doesn't work. We have looked at antibiotics, these azithromycin, coupled with hydroxychloroquine and independently, that was shown not to be helpful. Uh, they actually looked at remdesivir, which initially was looked at to be very, very helpful. And at this point in time, I think most studies, there have been two back-to-back studies which have shown that it's not decreasing uh, any significant marker of morbidity or mortality. I think that's also true of convalescent plasma. The last time I looked, I don't know if that's changed. So just in case anyone listening has not heard of convalescent plasma, that is where you take the part of the blood of someone who's already been infected and uh, kicked the virus and taking the antibodies and other nice things from their plasma and putting them into the body 
of someone recently infected. Right. And they have looked at some other laboratory-made antibodies or monoclonal antibodies. And some of those are showing maybe promise. Those are in phase three trials. Uh, They are, um, I think that they're emergency use authorized right now. And we've been trying to use them. And I don't know how good the effects are going to be. Those hopefully good for treatment. Those obviously wouldn't be for prevention, but they'd be good for treatment. But the point is, there are a lot of moving targets here. This is not an easy thing to compress all the data, and this is why it's taking so long or what it seems like a very long time for scientists and doctors and agencies to give you good answers about what's helpful and what's not. It's because there's a lot of studies that go on and a lot of things can make a treatment or drug look good or bad that can make a study difficult. And we won't necessarily be able to say with definitive authority that a treatment is helpful or not helpful right away. Yeah, what we can say definitively is not having diabetes is quite helpful. Not having high blood pressure is quite helpful. Not having medical conditions that you don't have to have a lot of the time is quite helpful. And the same things that we would be able to do to mitigate and improve those conditions are the same things that are likely to help you not get as sick from COVID. So even though we have these general techniques for what we know to comprise a healthy lifestyle, there's, in today's setting, in today's context, it's getting harder to do that. Um, For example, people have started to eat worse than they generally would, have less physical activity, there's all this stress, uh, their sleeping becomes dysfunctional, they're getting lonelier, um, and in general, a lot of people are just don't have enough money, and that's going to make everything really difficult as well and create all sorts of more obstacles and stress um, to leading a healthy lifestyle. But there are some things that are going in favor of living a healthy lifestyle. And if we can try and exploit those things, maybe it'll get to gain some ground here. One of those things, things like having more time. I mean, we have less obligations to others. There's less things we can do. Um, Kids are going to have less activities that they have to do. You're not going to have to commute as much, presuming you're lucky enough to still have a job. You won't have to go to it physically as much unless you are an essential worker. And then if you were spending more and more time with fewer and fewer people, that's a big opportunity to increase the quality of the relationships with those people. And that's one of the biggest things to even to, to living a healthy, long life is the quality of relationships with people. And with the extra time, you may be able to turn that around into exercising more, cooking more, eating better, because not only have you learned what to eat, but you can take your time and actually chew your food and eat all the right stuff. I actually find it kind of interesting that I noticed in the beginning of you know March and April when we went through the national lockdowns and the quarantines, a lot of the people that I was talking to at the time were telling me about how they were eating healthier because they were starting to make their own food and they were learning how to cook and reacquainted themselves with their kitchen. And I was like, that's great. That's awesome. You know, eating, eating out less and doing all the right things. And I think as time has gone on, it's gone back to, I, I just don't feel like getting up and doing it. You know, there's a lot of like complacency that's happened now. 
<laughs> and I feel like we just mm-hmm. we need to kind of take that and run with it and say, hey, you know what? You're capable of this. You, you know, you had all this all this time. Yeah, you can do it because you were doing yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> you did the hard part. I mean, you learned how. Uh, so I think that we need to get back to that. Um, but I think everything else you said is, is spot on. You know, there's, you know, th- there's a way to, you know, take the difficult times and crumble. There's a t- way to take a difficult time and, and be resilient and bounce back. And then there's the third and ideal situation where you deal with stress and you actually, you know, get forged in the fire and you get stronger out of it. And I think that that's, you know, we can take this opportunity to try to, you know, yeah, we've had to do some difficult things and make some difficult decisions uh, and deal with a ton of loss and uh, grief. But there are things that you can do to make that a positive for you, or at least turn those things into um, opportunities to get stronger and better and more complete. Yeah. And as you mentioned, we've been, there has been a lot of loss. People are losing their family members. Um, But what's interesting is that we've had a different kind of pandemic going on for quite some time, for years and years and years, in the form of largely preventable or treatable cardiovascular disease like heart attacks and strokes, diabetes, obesity. And if you just look at those numbers, something like five times as many people per year are dying or have died um, from those conditions than have died from COVID thus far. So it's like 1.7 million people per year dying from those things. That's like more than a thousand jumbo jets of people dying per day. So we are focusing on this pandemic. This one has really rocked everyone, but I just don't want anyone to lose sight or to, for it to remain invisible that there is another kind of pandemic still raging. Yeah, the struggles aren't going to be over just when COVID is over. You know, we're going to go back to some degree of normalcy, hopefully. And you just hope that that new normal is an improvement from a from a health standpoint and people have refocused on their health yeah yeah and and that's not to diminish all of the loss and the suffering that's happened uh it's just a reality though that we're going to go back uh, and we need to again make sure that it's better all right so if we're going to just summarize our recommendations in no particular order whole food plant-based diet with varied plants, vegetables, fruits, legumes, all that. Mushrooms too. Sleep, getting enough sleep consistently every night. Stress reduction and learning how to deal with stress that you can't reduce. Connecting with others, building quality relationships, enhancing the relationships we already have. And moving more, exercising, moderate physical activity, uh, ideally at least 150 minutes per week. You have anything else to add, Zach? Just kind of the same old standard stuff. Otherwise with social distancing, mask up when you're in public, even after you get the vaccine and hopefully you're eligible and able to get the vaccine. Uh, and you're, and you do that, especially once they get approved here, but continue to wear masks and, and try to keep yourself and others safe. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of the point. Once you have gotten vaccinated, if you're that lucky, Keep wearing the mask because we don't have the studies yet to show if you become less right. contagious after the vaccine. They just show you are going to get less severe illness. So I think that's it. I mean, it's a scary time. It's a weird world right now. Hopefully, this is 
a light at the end of the tunnel here with the vaccine starting to be rolled out now. Try not to let the stress bury you. Don't let the darkness become overwhelming. Keep doing the things that you can do to stay healthy. And those things really can make a profound difference in your health. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.